Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, we're going to continue in our series this morning. We're going to deal with a question, and it's the title of uh, the sermon, For Whom Did Jesus Die? The sermon comes as a part of our series that uh, you were surveyed, and uh, it was narrowed down to seven different messages, and we're uh, putting them in a descending order, working down to the number one question that more of you asked than, uh, than the rest. And so this is number uh, five in that series, counting backwards from seven. Remember, uh, the first in the series, number seven, was how do we know the will of God? We spent some time on that. Last Sunday, we, you were asking and we dealt with the, with the topic, what are the essentials that parents need to teach their children? And uh, those uh, messages uh, are on CD, and you can uh, get those from Jen in the back. Uh, they'll be eventually put on the webpage and the blog. You can get them that way, and uh, so they're available for you to have. But today is, for whom did Jesus die? If last week was immensely practical, and I think it was, this one is the most doctrinaire of all of them. This is, uh, this is a heavy you know, the Bible talks about uh, drinking milk from the Scriptures. And we understand that, that the, those are the lighter issues, the things that perhaps we can more easily grasp than others. The Bible also talks about the meat of the Word. And this is certainly uh, the theme topic of our message this morning. This is meaty. This is a, a family dialogue, though. Let me put it that way to you. There are uh, good men and good women that love the Lord, that are wonderfully saved, that have a different opinion on this subject. And I'm saying to you, that's all right. They're not outside of faith. They're not outside of the family of God. They're not heretics. I sometimes will say that. You can disagree, and you're entitled to your heresy. But I say that in jest. I've been a part of a faculty where some of the men on the faculty that, of which I taught did not embrace uh, exactly as I'm going to present today, and that's all right. It's a family matter. Do you have family discussions? I think you do. And if I were to come in and sit down at your kitchen table and, and kind of eavesdrop, I'd wonder what in the world you're talking about. You know, this is for the family. My father would say that sometimes. We'd have, he'd have a serious talk about something, and he would say, now this is table talk around this family alone. Does everyone hear me? You understand that? So this is inside of the family of God, all right? So let's say that clearly here at the onset. Now, having said that, I've studied this for many, many years, and what I'm going to present, I'm fully convinced that this is what the Scriptures teach but this is what you need to be convinced of. It's like Romans 14. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind, comparing Scripture with Scripture, like the Bereans, to see if these things are so. So when we ask the question, for whom did Jesus die, we're dealing with the heart of the gospel, of the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. Well, I want to begin by looking at a couple of verses, and they should appear on our screen up here. We want to look, first of all, at Matthew 121. Look at the, this. This is a part of the announcement of the birth of the Lord as to his coming and to his purpose. And, and the angel says, And she will give birth to a son, that's the Lord Jesus, and you are to give him, that's Joseph, the name Jesus, because... He will save his people, notice his people, from their sins. My point only at this to tell you is that it's definite and it's particular. 
He is going to save his people from their sin. Now let's look at another verse. Look at Revelation uh, chapter 5 and verse 9. This is a glorious picture of John looking into heaven. He sees the worship of the Lamb. And here's the lyric of the song that the saints sing in glory. And they sang a new song. And they're singing it to the Lamb of God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, The key thing, and we'll look at it later with Revelation 5 and 9, Verse 9 is that it didn't say you are purchasing all men, but that you are purchasing men, and that's generic, men and women, boys and girls, from every nation and kindred and tribe and people group that have ever been. He has purchased them through his death on Calvary's cross. That's all that I mean to say at this point. One other verse in Ephesians 5, verse 25 And here is that uh, great uh, section that deals with, oftentimes will teach us on the role of the husband and the role of the wife. This is often read at at marriages and wedding ceremonies about the husband and his duty to the wife, and he's the lover. And then the great illustration is given in verse uh, 25 of this chapter uh, where it says, Husbands, love your wives. Here it is. Here it lays down, just as... Similarly, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, it's narrow, it's particular, it's definitive. He gave his life for the church. The church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. And ekklesia means the called out ones. When we preach the gospel, the Spirit of God takes that gospel and He calls out ones to be saved. They become part of the church. They are the church. That's whom the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.25, whom Christ died for. He gave Himself up. doesn't say world, but He gave Himself up for the church. Well, Let's begin with the introduction. And today there are many, many building projects going on all over the world. There are, and I, I've said it a zillion times, I love to watch buildings go up. My father used to say, I love work. I could watch it all day long. I love to watch it. Faith thinks I'm crazy. I watched our whole neighborhood grow up. Behind us was an open field, and I said, and the builder owned all of that, and the plan was to finally wrap around, and, and eventually I said, if we had 10 years uh, that would be great because there's a big mound there and uh, we could ride the minibike and the boys could camp back there and build tree houses and cook weenies on the fire and all that. And they did for 10 years. It worked out just about perfect. And watched and build and develop all of that. I love that. And there are many building projects going on around the world. I mentioned that when we were in Dubai. I never saw anything like it where there are hundreds of skyscrapers going up at the same time. And the tallest building in the world. I mean, the thing is unbelievable to see it going up. Having said all that, I'm reminded that the greatest building project of all is one that's invisible. It's not with mortar and bricks and steel and wires and all that goes into it with the glass. It is where Christ is building his church. He's calling out men and women, boys and girls, from every, as we mentioned in Revelation 5, 9, from kindred and tribe and nation. He's calling out people to be a part of this call-out assembly, his church. And I submit to you, it is the great work of all times, greater than anything else that has ever occurred, greater than the space shot, greater than building the tallest building, greater than any and all of that. Well, the Bible tells us, and you know, that God is sovereign. That means he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he reigns with absolute power. Absolutely. He is not only sovereign, but he has 
He knows all things, and we say he's omniscient. He knows all things. How is that? Because he, have a, he has a plan that he himself has known uh, the triune God before even the foundations of the world. And everything unfolds according to his plan. And I've said a thousand times, you know, that one thing God never said, you and I say it a lot, but God never said it, was, I didn't know. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know that Sarah Palin was going to be nominated to be a vice president, shock the whole world, but not him. He knows everything. He has a plan that includes all things, and that's the God of the Bible, the God that we serve. So he's sovereign, he's almighty, he has a plan that includes all things, and hence nothing, nothing is left to chance. Nothing. R.C. Sproul's title of his book, Not a Chance, describes it. There is no such thing as chance in a world that God is, is great and sovereign and almighty and has a plan that includes all things. It's amazing, but that's what the Bible presents. There's no plan B. A lot of times we'll do that, won't we? We'll say, well, what's plan B? And what's plan C? And what are the audibles? Like to a quarterback going to the line, right? Did Ohio State have to call an audible, Dan, yesterday? One or two. Yeah, they had to come from behind. Yeah, call an audible. Oh, I didn't know the defense was going to look like that, right? No. God knows all things. It's all plan A with God. That's the God of the Bible, and we need to think rightly and worship him as such. Well, our salvation, then, is assured because it is the Lord's doing from beginning to end. It wasn't you. It wasn't that your mama took you to child evangelism, five-day club. God used that if you were saved that way. It wasn't uh, that you were fortunate enough or smart enough or how come you got it and the dumb guy next to you didn't get it? I hear things like that. It's really wrong. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. You and I, the vast of humanity, are born, we are born lost in sin, headed like the major Pennsylvania turnpike. I did this before and got in trouble. Which direction is hell? You know, I don't want to say Philly, but I don't want to say Pittsburgh, but... Let's imagine it's somewhere. You're going, and everyone is on it. And we all freely reject the God that we know, Romans 1. And if God didn't intervene in your life and in mine, according to his great story of redemption, none of us would be saved. None of us. That's the teaching of the Word. We're not neutral. We're not smarter. We're not lucky. God has done it from beginning to end. And for his purposes, surely, he has called out certain ones based upon uh, his love gift to his son who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice. And God chooses to save some. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. But in the choosing of it, God has provided an atonement. And that answers the question, for whom did Christ die? Well, it's his. Our salvation includes God's unconditional election. God is chosen. The Bible clearly teaches that. Most people, when they don't know their Bible, they resist that. That's not fair. Listen, you never want fairness with God. That's a call for justice. And if you're calling for fairness, you're calling for justice, we are intuitively sinful, lost, under condemnation. We're out of here. We're in the lake of fire instantly. I never ask God for justice. I ask God for mercy. Be kind to me. Hold back what I really deserve. And he's gracious to us. Unconditional election. A definite atonement, that's what we're talking about today. Irresistible grace, when the Spirit of God uh, goes uh, out to secure uh, those uh, who are to be the recipients of saving faith, you cannot resist Him. To resist God, impossible. And He draws men and women to the Savior. It's that, uh, that's the effectual calling of God in our life. You cannot resist. Now, he makes you willing. You, no one ever came and said, I don't 
I don't want to be saved. Don't make me saved. Nobody ever did that. And when they come to see themselves and the blinders come flying off that, of their state of condemnation and the grace of God and the love of God for us, they come a-running. You mean it's an invitation to come and be saved? That's for me. You see, I responded that way even as a young boy. Maybe you were older. And if you're saved, you responded that way. That's a clear teaching of the Word. It involves irresistible grace. It involves total depravity. Well, what's that mean? That doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. You can do some good. You're made in God's image, and you can do good. Hitler could give a box of chocolates to his girlfriend and have execute millions of Jews over there at the same time. You can do nice things. It means that we're pervasively depraved. That means that there's nothing that we can do good by way of goodness that would merit our salvation. God would pat us on the head, good job, you're in. None of us. You see, we're totally depraved. It means we're unable, total inability on our own to secure our redemption. The Bible teaches that in Ephesians chapter 2. And finally, don't you love perseverance of the saints? For whom God saves, he saves completely. The work of God is yea and amen. It's forever. I feel sorry for some that genuinely love the Lord that uh, are saved, I believe, but think that they're saved, and if they sin, they lose their salvation, and then they're saved again, and then they lose their... What a terrible... I wouldn't sleep at night. Would you? That The Bible never teaches that. Now, I think, if, I know that if they're genuinely saved, even though they have this wrong thinking, they're still secure and they'll be in heaven. The Bible never teaches that. That the God who he saves, he saves from what shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Romans 8, nothing. And therefore, those who are genuinely saved will persevere to the end and, and be in heaven. Well, Jonah was right, wasn't he? Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2.9. Jesus' death purchased men and women for God. That's what it did. Well, three considerations as we move through this thought of for whom did Jesus die. Now, stay with us now. We're gonna, I'm trying to we'll put the cookies on the shelf so that we can all kind of enjoy and munch on these and and if uh, you get all upset, that's all right. Just search the Scriptures. Don't beat me up in the parking lot or just say, you know, <laughs> swear at me or something. You know, just <laughs> search the Word on these things. These are, these are, these are meaty things. And, uh, and at the end of the day, if you disagree, well, then the Lord will straighten us all out someday in heaven. He will. That's my attitude on it. So the first consideration as we consider... Uh, the value of the death of Jesus and Calvary's cross. We might ask, really, what did Jesus accomplish by his death? That's a good way to, to kind of put the question in a way that we can manage. We will see that there was nothing general uh, about his saving work on Calvary. His atonement was specific and it was certain. All right, first uh, consideration uh, Jesus' substitutionary death provided a definite atonement. Just as the Passover lambs, remember that in Exodus? They were to take there with the plagues a lamb, uh, and they were to, uh, to, to, uh, to kill the lamb, and they were to apply the blood to the lintel and the doorframe, uh, and all those that were in that house, it was definite, it was particular, were, in, in a sense, saved from the death of, the, of, of uh, the firstborn as the death angel passed over in, uh, in the, the account of the Passover. It wasn't for all everywhere. We, in fact, we read that uh, Pharaoh's own son died. It was not a general son. It was particular and definite. And, of course, those uh, lambs that were slain there in Passover, as we know, would ultimately and finally point to John's great word, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And we'll describe exactly what that means a little bit later when John uses the word cosmos or world. Well, just as the Passover lambs pro provided protection only for those within the household and not for all, it was a definite or specific protection and covering. 
Well, the word atonement, let's give a little bit of a definition because that's the word we're using, is the work of God in Christ on the cross, whereby he actually canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his holy wrath that was against us, and won for us all the benefits of salvation. It was an accomplished work. That's what the word atonement means. Canceling the debt of our sin. He was our substitution. We believe in that fundamental of the faith. Substitutionary atonement of Christ. That uh, he stood in our place. He endured completely a finished work. Nothing to be added to it. In fact, he said it. It is finished. Work, the great work upon the cross when he died as his last word. Well, atonement can be thought of as, and just kind of separate the word a little bit in English, at one mint with God. Those of us who were originally at odds or enmity with God, now because of the death of Christ and what he secured there, really and actually, are at one mint with God. Peace, we might say. Peace is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a terrible thing in our homes when there's a lack of peace between couples or children and neighborhoods and country and, and even internationally. It's a terrible thing, war. We all hate war. We love to see Afghanistan completely at peace. Wouldn't we love to see the Iraqis completely at peace? But in this world, there will never be peace. Wars and rumors of war, why? Because men are selfish. James tells us they want. And so they fight and conflict and go after and seize. And, and uh, there have to be those that uh, are a sense of virtue and goodness that stop the oppression. Just think of the cost of uh, American lives in stopping the likes of Hitler. And think what would happen if, if we hadn't risen to the occasion as a nation in a previous generation to stop. It would be horrific to think of the conditions of the world today that you and I would be living. We'd probably be speaking German. Guten Tag, wie geht's? Some of us speak it sort of anyway, right? But it would be terrible. At one minute with God is a good way to think of it. The cross was necessary, number two, to provide justice and not violate God's holiness and sweeping sin away without punishment. In Romans uh, 3.25, uh, we discover uh, uh, Paul writing of just this. God presented him, that's Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, that's prior to the cross, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, as it were, looking forward to the cross. And so the cross is the great centerpiece in the place of God's eternal justice as he poured out his wrath against sin, the wrath that you and I deserved was the place of justice. Well, B, often Jesus' death is said to provide a limited atonement. Now, these two words don't seem to go together, and that's the rub with it. It's not the word atonement, obviously. It's the word limited that uh, tends to be the problem. A better way to describe this, uh, this, uh, this term of limited atonement is, uh, is to describe the work Jesus accomplished there by using words like particular atonement or definite atonement. They're better in describing what took place there. We would say certainly that uh, the death of Jesus, the God-man, he was verily God of verily God and verily man of verily man. And his death was sufficient for any and all. God could have saved not only every human being that has ever been conceived, but of every person on any planet, if there are any others, through the death of Christ. It was sufficient, no question about it. But it was efficient 
for those to whom he chose to be the recipients of the grace of God. Now, you notice the difference there? We're not minimizing the, the wonder of the death and the blood of Christ in the, in the sufficiency of it. But who was it that God actually provided a substitutionary atonement for? Well, we saw it earlier in Ephesians 5.25. It was he died for his church. Well, I say in C, number one, that everyone, that means everyone who believes the Bible, must agree that the extent of the atonement was limited. For all are not saved. We do not, we reject without any qualification liberal theology, and this is vastly taught in many, many places today, that uh, Jesus' death provided the ransom for all and for every person. It's called universalism. The Bible never teaches that. Never. It never teaches that. Judas will not be in heaven. Uh, Jesus called him the son of perdition. And so I'm sorry to say that he will not be there. Though you and I have sinned uh, like Judas, uh, our sins may be different from his in betraying the Son of God, but uh, he will not be there. And the Bible certainly uh, teaches that. And so the extent of the atonement is limited uh, in that we reject that false teaching of universalism. But number two, under C, the in- intent, and that's where the rub takes place, the intent of the atonement in God's eyes was to provide salvation for those chosen by God before the creation of the world. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless and his sight in love. He goes on to talking about uh, in that glorious doxology in Ephesians 1. And so the intent was to provide for those he had chosen before everything came into being. Such ones who were chosen or called his sheep. You know that not all people everywhere are his sheep. His sheep. And look what he says in that glorious John 10. Uh, It's a most wonderful passage. In John chapter 10, look at, we're going to read a number of verses. Look at verse 12. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The next verse. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, the sheep. Next, but you do not believe. He's talking here to the the unbelievers of that day, the Pharisees, because you are not my sheep. One more. My Father who has given them to me. Who is it? It's the sheep. It's my sheep. You're not one of my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. And so in that Good Shepherd discourse in John 10, Jesus clearly delineates for whom he is dying, for the sheep, for his sheep, and not for all people who who can be called not his sheep, as he calls them. Well, yet, it can be said, at this point, let me, let me mention a couple of things. There are a couple books that, if you're in the habit of reading and studying on your own, two books that really might help you in this. John Owen, who is probably the greatest of all the Puritan writers, brilliant. It take, this is slow reading. But his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, actually is the final word on this whole subject never been answered. Uh, it, uh, it's a masterpiece in showing all that was accomplished at Calvary's cross in the death of Christ, in the definite atonement. And that may help you to study the Scriptures. 
Another one, a lot easier to read, is by Dr. Boyce and Phil Riken on the doctrines of grace. And in that, he has a whole chapter dealing with the, uh, the atonement and the, uh, what was accomplished in the death of Christ. So I refer you to that. In Owen's book, uh, in the death of death and the death of Christ, he says, really, logically, you only have three options when thinking about what was accomplished in the death of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. The first option, he writes, is that Christ died for all the sins of all the people. And uh, that is either the Ar- Arminian view, that uh, the Lord died for all the sins of all the people, and depending how what you do with that, can also be uh, the Universalist, uh, also their, uh, their tenet that they would embrace. Yeah, Christ died for all the sins of all the people. The second logical choice you have, which I believe is biblical, that Christ died for all the sins of some people. That he became the Lamb of God, and what he did, he accomplished. And he provided the atonement for those whom he chose to be the recipients of his grace. And finally, And it's not biblical at all that Christ, the option you have is that Christ died for some of the sins of all the people, which would render all people lost. To die for some of the sins of all the people doesn't provide any sort of atonement whatsoever. But according to John Owen in his brilliance, those are the only three options logically that you have. Someone asked the question, are we redeemed because we believe? The answer, according to the Scripture, is absolutely no. We are not redeemed because we believe. Now listen carefully now. We believe because He died for us. And the Holy Spirit brings new life for those whom He died. You say, well, Pastor, you're splitting hairs. It may sound that way to you, but it's not. We don't believe in believism, that, uh, that you and I are able at any moment to simply believe. We have that ability, and therefore we could boast that I did it. I trusted Christ. He, it isn't that. It's completely we're dead in our sins. The Spirit of God brings new life to us because He died for us. And because He died for us, we believe. Now, I don't know what, I get a little bit ahead of myself with the lessons, but what it ought to do for you is make the death of Christ very, very personal for you and for me. There's a romance song out, it goes like, um, You Were Always on My Mind. You know that song? You Were Always, uh, I won't sing it. You guys have a little <laughs> But, you know, that really says it. For the joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12, you and I, if you know him as your Savior, we were on his mind. It wasn't just a blank check. You fill in your name. Just the, the huge mass of humanity. I sort of get lost in sort of the Penn State crowd, you know, at Beaver Stadium. Like, ah, everybody. Uh, The Bible doesn't present that. I really don't believe it. But he died with Terry in view and secured my salvation and with Faith and Jim and Dan and Rob. It changes it for me. It's beautiful, really. The cross was not intended to give all men the opportunity to save themselves through some sort of believism, but was intended to actually save the church. Powerful, meaty, but I believe with all my heart this is what the Scriptures teach. I rejected this early, I should tell you. I don't, I don't believe this stuff. I don't believe the script. That doesn't seem fair in my immature way of thinking. 
you know, if you can, you can finally get your arms around the doctrine of election, which when I first heard it taught, I rejected that as well, because that didn't sound like the American way. And the later Lord just kind of brought me along and said, just study the Word, buddy. <laughs> You'll discover I'm sovereign. You're not. I'm the potter, you're the clay, and if I choose some vessels to honor and some to dishonor, that's up to me. And Paul anticipates that. Well, some of us say, well, that's not fair. Meganoito, Paul says repeatedly in Greek. God forbid that we should ever say that. Should the clay speak back to God? Why have you done this? God is willing and able to do whatsoever he desires. To God be the glory. There was a day when eight people were saved and the mass of humanity were destroyed in the flood. And God was still all-loving, all-knowing, sovereign, merciful, just, and kind. God's ways are not our ways. He is great and greatly to be praised. Now, why he would save you and save me befuddles my mind completely. This whole room could be filled with all different faces. We'd be on the outside having tea and crimpets, right? Or bagels or something. And God would still be holy and just. It overwhelms me, really, to think, why would God save me? And I'll never get over it. And you know what? If you're saved, you'll never get over it in all of eternity. That God should make you the recipient of His grace and allow His Son to actually make the payment for your sin. One day, we remember it on a Friday there on Mount Calvary. That's what the Scriptures teach. Now, having said all this, what, number three under C, it can be said that Jesus is the Savior of the non-elect, as John Piper says, in some sense. You see, the lost, those who are non-elect, who will never be saved, do receive benefit from the cross, but it's all short of saving, of, of salvation. We see that in the Lord's Word in Matthew 5, verse 45. The, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, And that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And look at what God does. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the, and the unrighteous. And we call that common grace. God is gracious. How is God also Savior uh, in a non-salvific way to the, un, uh, to the unsaved. The fact that he allows the unsaved to hear the gospel one more time, it's a test of God's holy endurance, his patience, that he should endeavor to endure instead of just obliterate at the moment. That's, a, that, that's God's wonderful, sweet grace. The fact that he allows us to live one more moment in rebellion. The only basis of anything that we would receive, according to uh, 1 Timothy 4.10, where he's the Savior of the world, but especially to those who believe, there we're seeing that in some sense, and I think John Piper has it right, in some sense he is the Savior of all men. Or some would teach us saying, well, all classes of men is what he means. He's already talked about the kings and those that we work for and, and so on. But in, in some sense he is that he endures the contradiction of sinners against himself. Well, D, a good way to think about it is uh, in building bridges. Jesus' atonement uh, was a narrow bridge that makes its way all the way over the river. It's not a wide bridge that falls short. When we talk about uh, what was accomplished at the cross, it was a narrow bridge. It almost sounds like Jesus' words, narrow is the way, and few be it that find it, that leads to life eternal. There again in the Sermon on the Mount. It's narrow in that it doesn't include all people everywhere. That's the wide bridge, the general atonement. And maybe you hold that. But I would submit to you then that the cross, no one was saved. And in fact, men and women were simply moved to a sort of savable position. And not one single person was saved at the cross. 
it, uh, it's a wide bridge. It would be all people to make them all savable, but it doesn't go across all the way. But the narrow bridge for those whom Christ died, for those who were chosen, includes all of them, and not one of them is lost, we saw in John 10, and it goes all the way over. Growing up in uh, New York State, there was the Peace Bridge, and it's kind of a rickety old bridge, and we went over that. You guys probably went over that. Did you go over that recently? Yeah. And, and over that bridge, it makes it, I'm glad to say, all the way over to Canada, over the Niagara River, the torrent there is it. The Niagara River forms right, uh, right at that point from Lake Erie. It didn't go halfway across. But if you go down to Niagara Falls, there is a sort of observation deck that goes out. It's like a bridge-like thing. It goes out, juts out there. You can kind of go out over the gorge, even take the elevator up and go down to the bottom, and then I'm going to go out, and uh, you pay your 10 bucks or some ridiculous fee. How much is it, Hans? Yeah, that's how expensive it is. They didn't even do it. Uh, but it doesn't go across all the way. And that, uh, that bridge analogy may help you in thinking about this. What, what did Christ accomplish? Well, for his own, his sheep, he died for the church. He went all the way across and accomplished salvation. It was a real atonement he provided for his own. Wow. Well, what can we say? What's a second consideration? The Bible never calls upon people to repent on the grounds that Christ died for them. Get a hold of that now. Think about that. The Bible never calls upon people to repent on the grounds that Christ died for them. Now, words are very important at this point. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53.8. Remember Isaiah 53.6? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Well, verse 8 of that same passage talks about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in a prophetic way hundreds of years before Jesus would die. And the, the text says that he, that is the Lord Jesus, would be stricken for my people. It's qualified. It's not all people everywhere, but for my people people, he would die as the substitution in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Well, A, none of the sermons recorded in the New Testament have the phrase, Christ died for you, in presenting the gospel to the lost. Never, never. J.I. Packer writes extensively about this, and some of you are familiar with knowing God and Packer's uh, wonderful book on that. Nowhere. And you can, I encourage you to open your Bible and study this on your own. It may sound strange for us to hear this because we've heard it so often that Christ died for you. Won't you put your faith in Him? But you're not speaking biblically. At least you'll never find that ever in any of the sermons that are recorded in the New Testament. And you can look. Let me tell you where they are so you can study on your own. Acts chapter 2 through 5. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 10. Chapter 13. Chapter 17. Chapter 22. 10, 13, 17, and 22. If you like saying hike, hike, hike. <laughs> yeah, you check it out on your own. You'll never find it there. You'll never find it. Words are very important at this point as we express uh, the need of people to repent and to believe the gospel. Well, B, you might ask, well, are we to offer the gospel to all? Absolutely we are. Absolutely. The Bible's clear on this. God commands it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We are to do that. You and I are to do that. We're to be fishers of men. We throw our nets down. And when you and I do that, and, and whether we're good at fishing or we're novices at it, God, through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, promises that He will save some. And some believed. Remember that when Paul was in Areopagus, when he was at the Areopagus in, in Athens? Some laughed at him. Ha! 
resurrection. Come on, we're smart. We've been universally, university educated. We don't believe in that nonsense. Some wondered some more things. Hmm, what about this? And the text says, and some believed. You see, he threw down the net. He was fishing, and God drew some in to be saved. You and I are to proclaim the gospel to all people. Remember also, with the gospel, it's not so much an offer. We don't beg people to do that, though there is an urgency. We urge them, we urge our children, our grandchildren, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We urge, there's an urgency to it. People, you don't know if people are going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. You have no guarantee of that, so there is that. But it's not so much an offer, it's a command. It's an imperative. We are to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and believe and receive. These are imperatives in the, in the, new, in the Bible. And as we offer the treasure of the gospel, and that's what it is. You know, you ever think about it? When you and I share the gospel, we're sharing the treasure. We're sharing pearls of great price. We're sharing gold, something better than gold. We're giving it out at no cost to them. It's all been paid for. As you and I share the treasury of the gospel, God will call men and women to himself and save them. He promises to do that. He calls out his elect people. I used to have a tremendous professor, a godly man, got his Ph.D. in Edinburgh University in in, uh, 16th century Anabaptist history and uh, was a tremendous man who embraced the Word of God and the doctrines of grace, humble, more brilliant than I, one of the most brilliant top five that I ever met. I love the Lord, and he was so humble. He would he, he'd be out giving out tracts to the garbage men that would come by. I mean, he'd meet him in the front. It motivated me so that I did the same thing. Never forgot that. And he'd say, you just don't know who God's elect are. God may take that track, and maybe he won't read it, but the guy driving that truck will read it, and you just don't know. And sharing the gospel, God promises to save a people, a people that he's provided redemption for. And uh, we're to be faithful. And that's in our witness, and that's what God will deal with us also as a part of our judgment seat of Christ. Well, incidentally, next week, your question is, Uh, Where do we go from here to eternity? We're going to talk about a timeline as to coming future events. So uh, that'll rattle some of your cages as you look forward to it. A lot of times you'll ask me questions like that. But we'll deal with that next week. So, see, how do we speak biblically when presenting the gospel to others? How do we do it? Well, here I put on your sheet something like this. As you present to them the law and the fact that they're sinners and you can use all kinds of things to do that. and We've learned different tracks on how to do that. You'll get to the point where say, well, you need him. That is, you need Christ the Lord as your Savior. And he offers himself to all. He does. He offers himself to all. And those who receive him as Savior and Lord are promised all the benefits of the cross. That is an accurate way to talk about the invitation to believe and to receive Christ, the Lord, as their Savior. Notice what's missing. You're not saying to them because you don't know. Christ died for you. If they end up in hell, how did he die for them? You see, as their substitution. Again, I reject this general, non-particular atonement idea. It was an atonement that was an accomplished there at the cross. And so I would use such words as this. Well, what is universal in all of this is what? It's the, it's the invitation to faith. Uh, we broadcast the seed everywhere and invite folks to come and receive Christ the Lord and be saved. The resurrected one, the glorious one. And if they do, they're promised the benefits of salvation. Like what? Forgiveness of all sin. Isn't that great? But more than that, eternal life, heaven, and fellowship with the Lord, and on and on it goes. Wow, that's what's universal. Come, repent, receive, 
believe. Today, Christ died. Come. Well, we already talked about Revelation 5.9 tells us not that all men were purchased, but men, meaning generically men and women, boys and girls, from all groups and all peoples uh, that have ever been. Charles Spurgeon, writing on the same subject, that great preacher in London of, a, of another day, incidentally uh, in, held to a definite atonement without, uh, without any embarrassment, wrote this in speaking about uh, being accused of limiting the, uh, the death of Christ and the value. He, he writes, and I quote, We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminian says Christ died for all men. But ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? And they say, no, certainly no. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they say, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if. And then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, Spurgeon writes, who is it that really limits the death of Christ? Why, it is you who hold to this general atonement. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ, we say Christ so died that he secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Well, that's, those are really strong words from a great evangelistic expositor, the Prince of Preachers of a different day in London. Well, the third and final consideration, and we'll be done helping us to understand the value of Christ's death on the cross. And that is this. There are the, pas there are the passages in our Bible that seem to teach a general atonement don't do so, in my estimation. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some texts that seem to teach that God wills or desires all to be saved. Like 2 Peter 3.9. This is often put down. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. you circle the word you there. You always have to look at the context. Who is, Paul, I mean, who is Peter talking to at this point? He tells us in the very first verses of, the, of this letter, he's talking to believers. They were Hebrew Christians uh, that uh, were believers. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not willing any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think the narrow understanding of it, because of the contents of it, He's talking to Christians, and uh, he's dealing with them and some issues, and uh, he's talking about their need for repentance. And uh, it's uh, God's uh, desire. Sometimes uh, when we hear the word God wills uh, in other places, he is not talking so much about uh, his uh, ordained will, because if God had ordained it, and speaking of it that way, it would have been with certitude. It would have happened. But sometimes it's the word thulamai, which uh, uh, means God desires. It shows the heart of God. God isn't pleased in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, uh, Exodus 18.32 says, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
He has pleasure in the salvation uh, of his own, of his sheep. And so to think rightly about that. If God willed it, it would have been certain. Uh, it, it shows the heart of God. Uh, B, other passages state that Jesus' work was for the whole world. John's writing is very common uh, in his expression of the word cosmos. And 1 John 2.2, let's look at that. This is commonly said, well, ha-ha, here it is. He died for the whole world. Well, here is the atoning, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, John writes, but not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, John uses repeatedly in his writings this word cosmos. And what he is referring to throughout is it's not Jewish exclusiveness to it. In that day, the Jews despised the Gentiles, considered them dogs. And he writes of this repeatedly, that uh, there's now no difference, and Christ is the Redeemer. He is the propitiation, not only of us, we who are Jews, but for all people everywhere. It's universal. There's one Savior among the Romans, the Germans, the English, as we would say, the Chinese, those in South America, and so on. Well, propitiation is, you should note on your sheet, the real removal of wrath. And that's what Jesus did. He really removed the wrath that was against us at Calvary's cross. And so the Savior is universally offered uh, to all people, Gentiles too, not just the Jews. See, words like all and every must be defined by the context. Always, always, all and every. These type of universal uh, inclusive uh, type terms. I'll give you a, a, a reference. Uh, remember when Caesar Augustus determined that uh, he was going to tax the whole world and therefore all the world was to be registered, right? And that's when Joseph and Mary made their way down to the city of David to register. He was of the line and lineage of David. You know that from Christmas and the Christmas story. All the world. I got news for you. Not all the world. The context limited. Caesar was the Roman world. The Chinese didn't line up and go to their cities. The Japanese didn't. Those in South America didn't. Okay, everyone, all of us, go to our cities. Caesar, no. It's limited by the context. You see what I mean? We speak that way, right? Some of you work in, uh, in a shop and it Maybe uh, at 11.30 or noon, the whistle stops. Everybody take lunch! Well, the whole world doesn't take off to take lunch, right? Everything stops. Got to get my sandwich, right? No. People are working in the shop. Everyone. It's limited by the context. And we speak that way, but the context always determines that. And the same thing is true when we hear such uh, inclusive words, uh, lest we think it includes all people everywhere, and somehow we misunderstand the definite uh, atonement that was accomplished at Calvary. Well, finally, then, how does John 3.16 fit into this? Sometimes people say this. For God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting light. Well, the answer is pretty simple. That's absolutely true. It's true because the bio, it's in the Bible, and uh, it's true. It's the invitation to come and to believe and to receive. And the way that it's put is, and all those who are the believing ones should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if God has opened your heart and you're a believing one, the truth of that wonderful gospel in a nutshell is true. You will not perish in the lake of fire and hell forever, but you will be saved. You see, that doesn't run contrary to that. It's like when we talk about the teaching of the doctrine of election. Dr. Howard Barnett taught the adult class when I was a kid in our church in our city and uh, I remember my mother talking about what she was learning, and I first stumbled into this idea, and he taught it so well, and I think it really fits. 
This idea of election and selection, that God has chosen some and not all, and has provided for those. And so when we offer the invitation to believe, it's like uh, a major doorway. And on one side, it has uh, John 3.16 over the threshold. It says, whosoever believes, come and believe. And then when we, God works in our heart, He raises us from the dead, and we're saved, and, and we walk through that. And we look back over and we look at that uh, threshold on the other side. And it says to us, the biblical truth chosen before the foundation of the world. We look at it and we go like, oh my, I can't, wow, I didn't know that. I just, I responded and God called me. I knew I was a sinner and lost and under judgment. And God brought me and I cried out and he saved me. And then we come in and as we look and study the Word. Look, God is all-knowing. He's purposeful and He's certain and it's with certitude and He's, he's even selected as a love gift to His children. Chosen before the foundation of the world. One other passage that you ought to really think about with all this is in the, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Because it will unsettle you if... Um, you're, you're still working through this and gnawing on it. And, and John 17, verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. I skipped over that, didn't I? But in this, uh, he says very clearly, I am not praying for the world. Wow. But I'm praying for those whom you gave me. Wow. That'll shake up your day if you're embracing a general atonement. Here it is. Thank you, guys. After Jesus said this, this is a high priestly prayer, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those you have given me, for they are yours. Well, what can we say? Lessons for our life, number one. Today, the invitation is still open. You can be saved today. It's open. Come and believe. Confess that you're a sinner. Agree with God. I've sinned. All of us have. Come and and believe upon the Savior of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying in my place. Just to know that I was on your mind when you died overwhelms me. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. It's open. The invitation is open. Don't miss it. Be saved today in the quietness of your heart, right where you're saying, Lord, I believe. Thank you. You have saved me, and I'm thankful for that. Well, number two, if you are saved, come and understand how personal Christ's death was for you. Blow the dust off it if you knew it. Rethink about it. That he should die in your place. It makes our, in a few moments, we're going to have the Lord's Supper very intimate, very personal. That he should die. Thinking about you. It wasn't just a blank check. Your name was right there. We sing, there's a new name written down in glory. We shouldn't sing that. That's not a biblical song. Your name was written down if you are saved before the foundation of the world. Incidentally, that's some of our problem with this. We speak sloppy and we sing songs that are really are not biblical. And we teach them to our kids. And then we sing them all day long. We wonder why do we resist these kind of truths? Because the lyrics are really bad theology. Number three. Give thanks to the Lord Jesus who took your punishment for sin. He is our peace. Give thanks. I hope you never get over that, that he should die for you. He bore it all. He is our peace. And finally, today, number four, 
we worship a glorious God. He's glorious. He really is great. He's sovereign, even in the salvation of his people. Wow. For whom did Jesus die? Finally, I close. John Owen writes, If Christ died for all men, then most of those for whom Christ died are in hell. And Jim Boyce in final puts it this way, If God planned from eternity to save some, that's through election, then it is a contradiction to say that he sent his son to die for those he had previously determined not to save in the same way. That is a meaty sermon. And I didn't mean to mess you up, but you asked for it. <laughs> you did. You, you put it on your list. At least a number of you did, so it came in number five. For whom did Christ die? 